before Jeremiah was a bullfrog and a very good friend of mine. He was a prophet in the 7th century B.C. A very tumultuous time for the people of Israel because um, in large part the problem was they had turned their back on the Lord. And it was amidst this that Jeremiah was called to be a prophet. And Jeremiah is an amazing prophet because uh, for a number of reasons. Um, first off, I mean, we know more about him than any of the other prophets, so it makes it a little bit easier to say that. Um, in large part because we don't just know what the message it was that he was giving. We also know his vocational story. And initially, Jeremiah had no intention of, of really being a prophet for the Lord. He, he gave him some rather lame excuses. He said, you know, I'm, I'm too young. <laughs> I'm too inarticulate to be able to do this. But eventually he said yes to the Lord. And what's interesting is that modern scholars have dubbed him the, the weeping prophet, <laughs> weeping because of the tears most likely that he shed with the message that he had to share to the people. He was also known as a, a prophet of doom, again, because what the Lord asked of him to do was, was to speak to the people, to alert them to the, the physical and the spiritual decay and the pending doom and destruction of their capital of Jerusalem. But that's... Brothers and sisters, that's how we really know an authentic prophet, one that's willing to tell us and to proclaim something that goes against the grain. It's willing to tell us something that perhaps is not necessarily popular or going to be well received. And no doubt, and it makes perfect sense that false prophets sprung up around him, false prophets that, that's, that preached peace and said that everything was lovey-dove and everything was just okay with their culture. And it wasn't. It wasn't. As, as Jeremiah would point out, people were burning their children to the sacrificial uh, god uh, Moloch. Right? They, it was the equivalent of, of their abortion and infanticide of the day. And as one commentary even states, right, the nation itself had deviated so far from God, right, or in the, the New Testament lingo that we, we heard in the second reading today, they had, they had taken their eyes off of Jesus so much off of God that they had broken that covenant that the Lord had made with them. And everything that he had promised to them began to be un 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 unwound. Right? The Lord withdrew his blessing from them. Um, but then also, too, not only did that, but he uh, uh, punished them. Right? And that's what Jeremiah had to bring up, that there would be, they would be faced as a people with famine. Right? As we hear within the first reading today, that cistern, the deep cistern that Jeremiah is cast into, it didn't even, have, didn't even have water. It was just mud at that point. They would be plundered and taken, captain, taken captive as foreigners and eventually would be exiled all the way to, to Babylon. And yet that was what Jeremiah preached amidst. And it's, it's no wonder that he wasn't all that popular because um, what he went around to, to preach ultimately was he went to go to tell the troops themselves that they should surrender. <laughs> right? as, as Bishop Barron talks about, he said it'd be the, kind of the, the equivalent, the equivalent of, of um, you know, telling Americans today that we should surrender to Russia or China. <laughs> it didn't exactly go over well, particularly as they were trying to replenish their troops to prepare for battle against the Babylonians. And so you can imagine why people wanted to kill him. Again, because ultimately they had turned their backs to God. The spiritual decay, the death that had set in, 
It was the spiritual decay and, and, and death that hadn't come overnight. No, it was little decision by little decision of the people individually, but also the people collectively in Israel. Right? That they had progressively, with each little decision, turned their backs to the Lord. And that's ultimately what sin is, right? It's when we turn our backs to the Lord or we deny God. Or as St. John Paul II once said, to sin is, is even also to live as if he does not exist, to eliminate him from one's daily life. Right? And that's what the religion of secularity, or as I like to call it, the religion of no religion or the secularity, secularity police that have a, a firm grasp of our culture today have convinced many people and many people even on this campus, right? They want us to eliminate God from our daily lives. And what's interesting is classically, that's exactly what the communists did in Eastern Europe after uh, World War II itself as they, they moved into and, and, and seized the different uh, countries there. Most famously that perhaps some of you have heard a little bit about is, is the history of Poland itself, right? Where, where John Paul II grew up out of which the, uh, the first non-Italian pope in over 500 years came, right? Um, in his early pontificate, right, he would ultimately negotiate with the communists to be able to go back there and, and to, uh, to talk to the people in, in the very famous square there. In the midst of his, his, his talk that really, store, uh, that really stirred the masses to the heart, they began to chant the exact opposite of what the communists were trying to do. I said, we want God. We want God. We want God over and over and over again. And in that moment, the communists themselves knew that they were toast, right? Because Jesus, who is fire himself, burnt them. We ourselves... Brothers and sisters, we ourselves have to make those decisions on a daily basis, right? And I'd say perhaps the, the biggest challenge that you're going to be facing over the next several weeks and months is, as you begin here at Coastal or you re-begin is not ultimately to allow yourself to eliminate God from your life. Right. That beautiful second reading today has one of the most, most powerful verses of, of Scripture, right, that if we give in to sin and, and to anxiety and to other types of burden, ultimately what we do is we take our eyes off of Jesus. Right? And there's, a, there's, a, a, there's an antidote to that. There's an antidote to, to being like Jeremiah, who's he's not burdened uh, with sin, but he's burdened with his burdens. He's burdened with his anxieties as he, we hear about him within the first reading today, tonight as he's, he's down there within that cistern up to his knees in mud in the darkness. Right? There's, there's, there's an antidote to it, a real classic one for us as Catholics. And it's, it's, it's to not give in and to stop fighting. It's, it's to return our faces to God. It's to adore Him. Right? The root word of adoration, uh, some of you might know, but perhaps you don't. And it comes from two Latin words, ad ora, which ultimately means to be mouth to mouth. Right? And so adoration itself, in, in the case of of religion in the case of, of our divine worship of, of God is, is to be mouth to mouth with God, right? It's to be in communication with Him. 
There's many ways to, to adore the Lord. Right? The most classical way for us as Catholics is through Eucharistic adoration or through great reverence for the Eucharist itself. Um, but um, uh, there's many other ways to be face to face with Jesus in prayer. Right? To make a, a corner perhaps within your room this semester or, or to find a place that is quiet so that you can be face to face with Lord. Because if you're face to face with the Lord over and over again, if you're mouth to mouth with him, then ultimately that begins to exude from your life itself. It begins to exude from your life in a way that it did with St. Camillus of Laïs, a, a great Italian saint that we celebrated just this summer. For Camillus, his vocation um, as, a, as, a, as a priest and as a founder of this religious community, the Camillians, as, as they became to be called within Italy, was to care for the sick. But it wasn't just caring for the sick that, that, that Camillus did and what really ultimately made him uh, quite famous. No, what really made him famous was that in his caring for the sick, he saw Christ's face within every individual. It's so much so that... Um, you know, he would oftentimes, in talking to the, to the sick themselves, you know, in, in that, that close face-to-face or mouth-to-mouth encounter of adoration, of adoring Jesus within that other person, he began to confess his sins to them and to ask for mercy from the Lord. And so that's even how he's portrayed in artwork. He's got his religious garb on, but then he's, he's holding the suffering Jesus, right? Because, again, he never turned his back from Jesus. He never turned his face from Jesus. He was fixed and fixated upon Jesus's face. And so again, the question for you as you begin this, this new semester is, do you see Jesus in the things and the people around you? Do you see Jesus in the people and the things around you? And if you don't, then it's time for you to discern, perhaps on a daily basis, God willing on a daily basis, to discern what it is that is causing you to take your eyes off of Jesus. Is it sin? And if it's sin, then we've got confession. Right? Before this Mass, after this Mass, you can, you can text me. We can set up a time for it. Um, you can find me around campus. Um, but if it's burdens, if it's anxiety, and those are things that we have to give to Jesus, right? Because as another famous saint, uh, one of John Paul's favorite saints, John of the Cross, talks about, right, the occupied heart is no, has no place for God. The occupied heart has no place for God. And if we're overcome by anxieties and, and other burdens, there's no place for him there. And he wants to be there with us. He wants to be there with you. Jesus is the answer, but Jesus is also the model of how to keep our eyes fixed on the one. Because Jesus himself throughout sacred scripture is in deep communion with his own father. He keeps his eyes focused upon it, right? We remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, is, in, in, his, in, his, in his passion as he's about to undergo it, right? He's there on his knees and he begins to literally sweat blood, right? And, and what, what's taking place is, is that he ultimately is conforming his own will to the Father's, right? Thy will be done. I just will pray within the Our Father this, this evening. Right? And again, through that close, intimate relationship with the Father, just as he wants us to have a close, intimate relationship with him, right? he is set ablaze. Right? Because there's no sin, there's no burden that is in and on him. 
right? Because everything is burnt right off. Everything is toast. He is an incendiary himself. And that's what he wants us to do as well. He wants us to burn with love for one another. He wants us to set the world ablaze. He wants us to help pick people up out of that cistern as the men lifted Jeremiah up out of that cistern to free them of sin and to free them of all anxiety. 